the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our second hour of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to bring on a dear friend and uh, someone we've had on before. He is Daniel Seiden. Danny Seiden is the president and CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and Industry. AZChamber.com is their website. Danny, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Seth. Thanks for having me back on. You bet. Sorry for the confusion. I gave you the wrong phone number. I apologize for that. No, it it happens. I I just hope you weren't doing some other radio interview with whoever answered that line, thinking you were talking to me. I apologize for that. No, I bought bought some car insurance. It's all good. Oh, okay. There you go. Car insurance. Very funny. Danny, um, there's a lot going on in the economy. You guys have been leading the charge on a lot of good stuff, which tends to be a little bit of blocking more than anything these days. And I wanted to just get your take on it and your education for our audience on what you're seeing on our economic woes, supply chain problems, inflation, and the bill back. Uh, better uh, plan, which looks like it's it's down at least for now. Maybe start there. You you um I saw you at a couple speeches, a couple of events, and you were you were um you were famously saying, look, it's not really the cost of Build Back Better, which is a problem in and of itself, but the real problem is the merits of Build Back. What's inside the cost of Build Back Better? Do you want to say a few words about uh, why why you think it should remain underground? Sure, sure. You know, um, thanks, thanks again, Seth, for, for pointing that out. And um, I, again, you know, we're in the Christmas and, and Hanukkah and holiday season right now, but we're not too far removed from Halloween. Right. So these types of bills could always be zombies yeah. to come back. Yes. So I, I don't want to rule out Bill Back Better's return. Um, but yeah, at the moment with Senator Manchin saying he's a no, it does look like we won't see it again until the new year. And, and I'll comment some more on, on why they could change the way in which they do that, and it might be beneficial for the whole country. Sure. But you're right. The Chamber has always said it's not the price, it's the policy. And let's talk about the policies. Now, if it was just the price, we talk about the fact we're already seeing Jimmy Carter-level inflation. Yeah. I mean, this is the worst inflation in almost 40 years. Yeah. And the backers of this bill are willing to flood the countries in red ink. And so 6.8% inflation is the worst in decades. So even at a time when we're seeing some quote-unquote raises, it's actually a pay cut for hardworking Americans. But, you know, the truth is a lot of the provisions in this bill seem like they're specifically designed to hurt a pro-growth, low-regulation state like Arizona. And let me just walk you through a couple. First and foremost, you've heard of a company called Lucid, a fantastic electronic vehicle manufacturer right out here in Pinal County, won Motor Trend Car of the Year. It's amazing. It is uh, fantastic. But you know what? If Build Back Better had passed the way that it was written, it would have been giving um, tax credits 
for people who wanted to buy electronic vehicles, but not if they were manufactured in non-union right-to-work states like Arizona. No, you had to have been in a pro-union state, a pro-union factory. What sense does that make? That penalizes states like ours. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, we're glad that Senator Sinema, we're glad that Senator Manchin stood up to bad policies that don't make sense like that. Now, that's just one. Let's talk about uh, some drug pricing issues. Sure. I don't know about you, Seth, but if you could tell me a time in history when government interference in healthcare has ever led to lower costs, I will I will sit here and, and, and be shocked. I'd die of a heart attack. I won't shock but you. What, I, I'll, I'll just save you that problem right now. I can't do it. <laughs> you won't. But there was provisions in this bill that wanted to interject the government as price negotiators for pharmaceuticals. Now, all we hear preached about all the time is vaccines, right? And how do we get this miracle vaccine, which I do think is a lifesaver, it saved millions of lives. Pfizer has saved millions of lives. Moderna has saved millions of lives. We got there because of the private sector and R&D dollars. Now they want to interject the government as a price negotiator, which will cost, you know, R&D dollars. And we don't have to guess that that's what's going to happen because we've already seen this play out. We've already seen this movie. We've already read this. We've already seen it with monoclonal antibodies and the government taking over the distribution of it. Yeah, government doesn't work. But I mean, in this specific instance in Europe, where they act as price negotiators, there are no R and D dollars. They're not the ones who came up with the vaccine. Yeah, that there you go. Here. Yeah. So, 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 so again, bad bill, bad provision of the bill, and we're glad that that went down. Yeah. Now, um, I, I could I could keep going. There's this provision in there. You've heard of it. It's nicknamed salt state and local tax. For high uh, tax states, it benefits. For low tax states, it hurts. Um, uh, you know, if you we could take up the whole show talking about provision by provision, about what's bad in this bill. And, um, again, you know, manufacturing, um, and it it, uh, subsidizes unions. So basically it'll take taxpayer dollars, and if you're paying into unions, it'll it'll reimburse you for your union. And that was a problem with the child care provisions too, right? I mean, they had to be, you know, they had to be teachers that went through education schools, and they had to be... Uh, with people that uh, were go- going to be members of a union. I mean, all of this was about picking certain kind of non-governmental organizations, if you will, that were preferred by this administration to engage in policy that would cover all of America at a very high cost. That's what this was about. That, that's, that's, that, that's right. To, you, you're right to point out. And so, you know what, allow me to play like a, a civics teacher for sure. a, a second. What would have been a better way, and again, I'm a retired operative there you know i'm a nonpartisan trade organization representative but just if i were to suggest one thing go back to the drawing board break this bill apart break all bills apart and say i don't know if you want to talk about or is that the idea oh there we go yeah but you shouldn't you you shouldn't exclude uh, a faith-based organization you shouldn't exclude um parents from having the choice of child care so so again debate each individual bill piece on its merits um, if you want to talk about how to subsidize the electronic vehicle um, industry, do it on its merits. Let each portion of this bill stand alone. Vote it up or down rather than put together an omnibus and then say, oh, why did this fail? It's all Senator Manchin's fault. It's all Senator Sinema's fault. No, that's not good government. That's not how the greatest deliberative body in the history of this country is supposed to work. 
And um, good on Senator Manchin for doing the right thing and saying no. And maybe they'll go back and we'll get some good policies out of this. Maybe government will work as it should. So hopefully uh, McConnell, who I think is the big winner here, and I think American people are the big winner here, will get back and we'll get some good policies out of it. We're talking to Danny Seiden, president and CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. Danny, the amount itself, though, the amount, if we can talk about the price tag for just a second, and all the spending that we've been seeing over the past year proposed and 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 uh, proposed and deployed and proposed and not deployed, it seems to me that that part of the conversation is disconnected from the inflation part of the conversation because we have yeah. learned and known for decades what causes inflation. And it seems to me, at least for those of us that once upon a time knew the name Milton Friedman, we know what causes – not only do we know what causes inflation, we seem to be doubling down on those causes. No, no. Steph, that's a really good point. I'm glad you bring that up. You know, I can remember my macroeconomic uh, class in college, and, and I'm not a finance person, but I can tell you that too few dollars – I'm sorry, too many dollars tasting too few goods, right. which devalues the dollar. Right. And that's basically inflation. Yep. And for too long, that's all that it was, was this, this uh, academic concept for us. But no longer is that the case. People feel inflation right now at the gas pump. They feel it at the grocery store. And they're feeling it when they're buying their Christmas presents. So it's not some ideal. It's not some thing that was debated, like in our economics classes. It's not something that a guy named Milton Friedman talked about or my economics professor talked about. It's a realistic thing that we're all living. And so pumping more dollars into the economy is not the right answer right now, especially when we do still have supply chain issues. So there still is a too few goods problem. And you did bring up the cost. And, and so I know I said it's, it's about policy, but the cost was a real show game, wasn't it? Yeah. Because you never got a real answer on what right. this thing was going to cost. So um, our good friend, who you and I both know, Hugh Hewitt, said, who's the real bad guy here? Is it Senator Manchin? Is it uh, Leader McConnell? No, it's the Congressional Budget Office. Mm. Because one, one week, the, the cost of this was $1.9 trillion. The next week, it was $3 trillion. Well, I, I think the CBO put it at a staggering $4.9 trillion in the first decade alone. So um, I think math was the real winner here. Because math alone said this was too expensive, and now when we're feeling what inflation does to us in our pocketbook, um, nobody wants to do that. You know, we did a teletown hall. You said you heard me doing some speeches recently. Yeah. And I heard from this, this nice lady who's on Social Security who just, quote, unquote, got a raise on her Social Security. And she said, I can't even afford my dog food anymore. Right. And this is the problem with this. Inflation is crushing these people. It's crushing all of us. You had mentioned it. I mentioned it. Uh, supply chain. And I know you're, you're kind of like me. You're, you're kind of a word guy. And we, we kind of sit back in fascination as, as some phrases, you know, dominate the news for a month and then just magically disappear. Supply chain was dominating the news last month. It seems to be a little bit quiet, but the problem hasn't gone away. Danny, what is the supply chain problem? And, it, and it's really in some respects, it's, it's not new. It's just been exacerbated. At least that's my thought. But you, you, you're the expert here. Uh, you know, I would say I'm far from the expert, but I am someone who deals with this on a daily basis. Yeah. My members talk about it all, all the time. And so, um, you know, there's there's probably no greater threat to our growth right now than supply chain. Okay. So um, what's happening right now is, and you can point to a lot of different indicators, but uh, during the pandemic, when the economies in different countries shut down, 
uh, goods were not being made and it made and it interrupted our supply chain. So you take something like a semiconductor, right? Talk to someone that these aren't anecdotes anymore. Talk right. to anyone who's tried to buy a washing machine, a refrigerator, or a car. They cannot because semiconductors are the microchips that go into every one of those devices. And for too long, our supply chain has been spread out into too many countries. And those countries shut down and our supply chain was broken. Now, credit the, the former president for the Tax Cut and Jobs Act because that did a lot of onshoring and the CHIPS Act as well for trying to bring, you know, like Intel, TSMC, here in Arizona, we're starting to manufacture a lot more a lot more of our semiconductors. Intel in its $20 billion investment, TSMC in its $12 billion investment, Governor Ducey's done a heck of a job on these things. So we're, we're cooking with grease on that. So maybe we're going to have a supply chain of semiconductors here in Arizona. But right now we don't have that. So with just on the semiconductor example, those chips aren't being made. Cars aren't being produced. We have plants being shut down. Yeah. You know, major car manufacturers aren't being moving because they don't have that one microchip that won't allow you to manufacture a whole car. And that's just an example of a car. That That's true for everything else. Look at the construction industry. For a minute, lumber wasn't short. Yep. So you can't build a house. Um, go look at the pictures of what's happening off the coast of Long Beach. Right. Containers are floating off there. You can't get them unloaded to get our materials to go build houses. And that's driving up costs. So um, that's that's one other thing. And then let me tell you about truck driver shortage. Yeah, I wanted to do truck driving. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, let's, let, let's talk about that. So we don't have people to drive the trucks to get the goods where they need to go right now. And so how do we address that? Well, we're trying to incentivize people to drive trucks now. We're raising pay. Companies are, are being uh, offering bonuses. You're looking at states who would love to lower the age for a CDL. You know, it's supposed to be 21. There's federal regulations that prohibit it from going down to 18. You have governors. Again, that's who leads, right? Governors petitioning the feds to say, can we drop it to age 18 so we can get some more truck drivers to move these goods? So, you, you know, Seth, it's all across the board. Labor shortages are contributing to supply chain issues as well. These woes are going to take a long time to clear up. That was kind of where I wanted to ask you on, on, on my last question. You and I are both kind of kind of operational uh, optimists, but it is not going to necessarily be fixed on January 1st, 2022, is it? No, it's not. But I'll say this. I am an optimist uh, because I believe in we, we, you and I live in the greatest country in the world, and we uh, are an innovative country, and our, our people will pull through. They will come up with better ideas, better uh, methods, better supply chain methods. And this won't, what happened in these past two years will lead to better learnings for the future. And I just believe our country will grow and become more efficient as a result of that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, Seth, I choose to believe I'm right. Yeah, I hope you're right. I'd like to believe you're right. I'd like to believe the lessons we learned in high school will stick. I'd like to believe the lessons we learned from Friedman or you know, Mr. Myron in my case at Arcadia High School will stick. We learned it once. (laughs) We don't have to relearn it again. But maybe we need a little reminder once in a while, Danny. And you are just so great at giving us those reminders. I appreciate you, sir very very much well and you as well seth on the radio and our friend hugh and, and and the governor and other governors out there talking about um honestly free market free enterprise that's what people need to hear right now i think for far too long maybe we've we, we haven't been hearing the other message yeah uh or we've been hearing too much of the other message yeah. i don't want to get into labeling socialism or anything else but free market free enterprise is the way out of this it's the growth is the way out of this and that's 
that's what we're, that's what's going to happen. The the other thing too, and I have to say this just because I talk to our hospitals a lot, we are seeing and we are at capacity with this. The virus still is hitting our hospitals really hard, so I do have to make my push for everyone to get vaccinated. Do your part. Do what you can. Um, help, don't. That could also hurt the economy and supply chain as well. There, we have great leaders at our hospital systems, and they're fighting their way through this. And the labor shortages with nurses, doctors, uh, that's a real thing. And so I credit our hospitals for being innovative and pushing their way through. Danny Seiden, well done, sir. Bless you. Merry Christmas. Little Lee Majors there for you on the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. One thing I just want to, um, I want to put a marker down on. I, want to, I just want to lay this down. I sometimes do this just so we, uh, we can go back and have the, uh, the necessary uh, credibility here. And I guess in my, uh, in my, uh, in my romantic dreams, I, I, I like to think perhaps sometimes... What gets said on this show might get picked up by a journalist here and there, which is with all this talk about Omicron and all this talk about Joe Biden and all this talk about Build Back Better and the lamenting of its failure or the celebration of its failure, whichever side you fall on, um, there, there is a story that has not gone away, has not fixed itself. And it was a story that dominated at least part of the news, or at least part of the network of news last week, and the week before that, and the week before that. And that's the issue of violent crime in our major cities. It was only December 4th the L.A. Times ran a headline titled, Brazen Crime Shakes Los Angeles, Leaving City at a Crossroads. That was December 4th. Today's December 21st. Has it been fixed? It hasn't been fixed. In fact, a famous Alan Gino, is that what you say? Alan, G- Alan Angelino, that's what you say. A famous Angelino uh, was, uh, was an 81-year-old philanthropist, uh, was uh, killed um, just two days ago. And uh, there's a rapper, Draco Ruler, fatally stabbed at Exposition Park concert. That's Los Angeles. That's just Los Angeles. Chicago? Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she's still asking the feds for help on fighting crime. Nothing has changed. Nothing has solved itself. Nothing has been fixed. I want people to remember that as we jump from lily pad to lily pad. Okay? Just just laying down a marker. We won't forget it here. We won't forget it here. Jack is in Phoenix. Jack, how are you, sir? Good. How are you, Seth? I'm fine. Thank you. I was calling up about the uh, not well-advertised war between the FCC and the FAA, and I don't know if you've heard anything about it, but I thought if you had, you might want to comment on it for the listeners because they're probably not aware of what the implications are. I don't know a thing about it. I don't know what you're asking about. So do you want to take, let's take the break and inform us on the other side real quick? Sure. All right. I'll take a commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Jack is in Phoenix. Thank you for waiting, Jack. You wanted to tell us about a uh, an FCC and FAA issue. Yes. 
Go right ahead. The, uh, okay, well, as everyone knows, you know, 5G is the thing, and you have lots and lots of money being invested to put 5G out closer to everybody and have higher bandwidth services. Uh, part of the interesting thing about 5G is it sits very high in the transmission band, and as a result of that, you need a whole bunch more antennas because the propagation is shorter. Well, the uh, FAA has come on and said, hey, I'm worried because I think this uh, electromagnetic interference could in fact affect uh, radar control, especially in areas where there's dense uh, 5G rollouts, and we might have to start canceling flights. And, uh, you know, that's going to be something that may in fact become more dramatic than it is now because unless you're involved with uh, the telecom industry or the aviation industry, a lot of people aren't hearing about it. Well, okay. Uh, thank you. I, um, I, I, yeah, I, I was unaware of it. I didn't know about it. Uh, what can we do about it or where should we go to learn more about it? Well, what you can do to learn more about it is uh, probably look at the FAA.gov and any uh, uh, aviation sites that uh, comment on the uh, current regulations. Uh, one of those might be the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Uh, you might hear about it. Uh, everybody is, most people are familiar with Flight Aware. Uh, Flight Aware oh, yeah, sure. Tracking flights and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, but they also talk about industry activity. Oh, okay. So, uh, and then the FCC, uh, you're not going to hear much about that unless you go into perhaps FCC.gov, and you might see some articles there or some research papers because uh, you've got the industry saying, ah, there's no problem here with 5G. And on the flip side, you've got the FAA engineers saying, hmm, there, there may in fact, and if in those dense environments, we could be canceling flights. I appreciate you alerting us to this, Jack. I just—I'll uh, confess my ignorance. Uh, I didn't—I uh, didn't know much about it. Uh, I hadn't, it hadn't even dawned on me. So, uh, thank you very much. Maybe I can deputize you too, as someone who can keep us surprised of this and any developments on it, for good or ill, or any action items we can. Um, we can take on it. One of the things I uh, I did want to mention here, and uh, I I don't know. In the crime discussion that I was having just a few moments ago, I don't know if how much it's going to resonate or not. But um, but when we look at the cities with the worst crime problems, and when we look at the statements of Officials in this administration, prior to them becoming uh, Senate-confirmed or prior to them joining the administration, and you look at what they were saying a year ago on riots in this country, what they were saying a year ago on uh, reforming or reimagining the police, there really shouldn't be any kind of hesitancy whatsoever about understanding what the nature is what the um, etiology, not ideology, ideology, etio, etiology of the crime wave 
is or where it's coming from. You know, when we um, when we highlight certain things, we don't we don't just do it because it's a fun or easy uh, political political trick or, or political gamesmanship. So last year, when in Oregon, for weeks on end, the federal courthouse was being firebombed, weeks on end, it was being firebombed, and William Barr, then the U.S. Attorney General, was trying to testify before Congress on it, he said something interesting. They were interrupting him every other sentence, and it was very hard for him to speak, even though they had summoned him to testify. I'll never forget his line, which is, people are being injured, and a federal courthouse is under siege. Is that okay now? He asked it somewhat rhetorically, but not completely rhetorically. No one, of course, said yes, and no one, of course, said no, because for him to ask that question was to answer that question. Yeah, it was okay. You may have heard a clip of me saying to the Democrats, it's the worse, the better. The worse, the better. Why is the worse, the better for them? Because it allows them the excuse of using every piece of power at their governmental means to do whatever they want to about that problem. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I mentioned briefly earlier I wanted to say something about this, and you bet I do. This is the uh, today uh, anniversary, sad anniversary, of the 19, um, 1989, uh, excuse me, 1988. It was right across from New Year's. I went to visit it in 89. The 1988 uh, bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie. Scotland. Um, And I wanted uh, just to mark it in a few different ways. It it took uh, something like uh, almost 200 American deaths when the uh, bomb went off and 35, 40, somewhere in that range of those were students from one university, Syracuse. Syracuse University constituted 35 to 40 of those deaths. I just don't recall off the top of my head. But I remember how how much it struck those of us uh, who were in college uh, in those years and those of us going on abroad study programs, etc. I went the following year to study in London, and a few of us, handful of us, uh, took a um, took an unauthorized <laughs> an unauthorized spring break, rented a car. And we, we wanted to drive to Lockerbie because we heard there was a memorial there. And we wanted to, um, to see what that memorial was. We wanted to see how Scotland was dealing with uh, the aftermath of this shocking terrorist attack. And it seems now to be pretty much just forgotten as well. They did a good job, by the way. I have to tip my hat to the folks in Lockerbie. I don't know what exists there now. I haven't been back. But I remember at the time it was a very moving, it was a very moving uh, uh, scene and setup uh, for visitors uh, who wanted to pay their respects to where some of the uh, fuselage had ended up and um, where uh, the bodies, some of the bodies, were in fact buried. But that 
that terrorism, that act of terrorism on Pan Am Flight 103, that was obviously before 9-11, long time before 9-11. But it came in uh, December of 88, as I say, in between two presidential administrations. George H.W. Bush was on the way out. Christmas was coming. Bill Clinton. Uh, I did that wrong. Reagan was on the way out, and George Bush was on the way in, and Christmas was coming. It was the transition of administrations, and Christmas was coming. And um, the American mind just wasn't focused on it, even though it was obviously horrible for those Americans' families that were the survivors of it. But the American mind wasn't trained on it. And it wasn't trained much better after the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, which took six lives and, by dint of a miracle, didn't take down the entirety of the World Trade Center the way it came down via airplanes in 2001. Let me put this in the category of, like I was talking about with crime a few segments ago, let me put this in the category of problems that have not been solved and have not gone away. Problems we just don't talk much about anymore. How many of you are aware of the piece of legislation Ilan Omar proposed that passed the House of Representatives, titled Combating International Islamophobia Act, the Combating International Islamophobia Act. It passed the House on partisan lines 2019 to 2012. It puts Islamophobia as a word or phrase as a word into the title of the legislation. As Zudi Jasser points out, to grasp how dangerous the bill is, it's important to understand the origins and history of the very term Islamophobia. It was operationalized by Islamist movements in the West, like the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 20th century, in order to silence Western debate where Muslims are a majority and prevent ideological diversity with emerging institutions of Islam. It was popularized by the ruthless theocrat Ayatollah Khomeini and his movement in 1989 when he issued a fatwa that imposed the death penalty on British author Salman Rushdie. For what? What did Salman Rushdie do? He wrote a novel. A novel called The Satanic Verses. The term was then also repurposed internally within the Muslim-majority countries, under the neo-caliphate umbrella of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, where autocratic regimes would extinguish domestic dissent through torture, imprisonment, or death under the guise of protecting God and his faith of Islam. In other words, it is a term that is used to jail and silence critics of Sharia tyranny and call them blasphemers. By the way, a little note on a um, little-known note on that fatwa against Salman Rushdie. I don't know how many of you know this, but when Salman Rushdie was traveling in those days, he had to travel incognito. He had a serious death threat against him, one that, but for a handful of friends, he was able to 
void and keep alive. And one of those friends who hit him out in his basement where he lived when he was alive was Christopher Hitchens. Did you know that? Christopher Hitchens said a lot and wrote about and wrote a lot about Islam, Islamic radicalism. He had it living with him in his basement. He knew of what he spoke. And as far as I know, that fatwa has never been lifted. But those who created the phrase Islamophobia are those who believe with George Bernard Shaw that assassination is, in fact, the highest form of censorship. You kill the person, you don't have to worry about silencing the message anymore. You just kill the messenger. And that's what they try to do. And here in America, we have taken that created phrase, which was based on doing just that, and allow it without much comment, without much agitation, to simply pass the House of Representatives on a partisan line vote. Now, of course, it would have to go to the Senate and be signed by the president to become law. And as of now, it appears it won't be going to the Senate. But the operative words there are as of now. Maybe on this day, December 21st, in remembering what took place over the skies of Lockerbie or any other tragic, horrible, bloodthirsty act of Islamic terrorism, we might want to think twice about being harder on Islamophobia than we are on terrorism. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The Hallmans are on deck, and they'll be in in just a few minutes. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, as we do every Tuesday in the third hour. Michael Osterholm, is that a name that rings familiar to you? He was the uh, head of uh, Joe Biden's uh, campaign advisory team on COVID. Very, maybe the second most famous epidemiologist in the country, if Fauci's the first. He's second to Fauci. Um, and is at uh, one of the universities in Minnesota. It's been around for years, and until Fauci became uh, famous again between AIDS and now, Michael Osterholm was more or less the go-to guy on other outbreaks uh, in the media. He, about five months ago, said that uh, all masks outside of N95 masks are useless in uh, stopping covid Uh, He was ignored. I don't know if he's been invited back to CNN. You know, my gosh, a Democrat who advised Joe Biden saying every mask except an N95 is useless. So CNN went in for a little more punishment and they went to George Washington uh, University professor, Dr. Leanna Wen, MD, also an epidemiologist, uh, just yesterday. And uh, boy, (laughs) Um, listen to who you want, folks. But this is CNN around you wearing a three-ply surgical mask don't wear a cloth mask cloth masks are little more than facial decorations there's no place for them in light of omicron and so wear a high quality mask at least a three-ply surgical mask reply surgical not a cloth uh so next time um someone tells you or shames you for not wearing a mask while they are wearing their fancy embroidered or 
their uh, handily, uh, handy uh, couture mask or whatever you want to call their cloth mask. Um, next time they give you a lecture, just understand you're, you're dealing with people who are into performance art, not actual science. So much of this is actually performance art, isn't it? Um, you think about the airplane situation and masks. Uh, first of all, we know that there are no... Uh, no, 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 uh, no stories of any outbreaks that that come from the airlines, and yet we're now having a discussion about whether we might have to require vaccine passports to get on an airplane. Never mind the fact that we're already enforcing masking on airplanes. Okay, we're enforcing masking on airplanes as we put you side by side next to other people, closer than the distance that is recommended by the CDC, and allow you to take the mask off to eat and drink at the moment when your projectiles from your mouth, call it spittle for lack of a better word, is at its highest degree of not only velocity but entry into the atmosphere. Performance art. It's performance art. Anyone who gets really angry about this stuff on the other side and about your refusal to go along with this performance art, just understand they're mad at you for not acting a role in a fiction play. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.